0: There's a lot of papers that are out there that say, you know, GMOs cause cancer or glyphosate causes cancer. But they're done by people who are just compiling little lines and things out of other papers, putting them together in ways that make it look like a compelling argument. But they've never done any laboratory research. They say they're research, but they means they look on Google..
1: Welcome to another episode of GMO Watch. I'm your host, Emily Journey. I'm curious about GMOs and why I choose to eat organic and non-GMO foods. My guests and I are going to break down the hype from the facts around GMOs in our food so that you can come to your own conclusions about what you want to eat. Dr. Kevin Folta is a professor of horticultural science at the University of Florida he is also the host of Talking Biotech Podcast. Dr. Volta is well versed in genetic engineering, biotech, and GMOs. So, GMOs have been around for a long time. I bought the domain GMOwatch.com more than 10 years ago, and they've been around much longer than that. And there have been claims about GMOs, probably the good things that they're capable of, and also some bad things that they're potentially capable of, and it's really hard to dissect and kind of weed out, like, what can I trust? You know, what's the information I can trust? Do you have any suggestions on how do I figure out what's worth paying attention to and what isn't?
0: Yeah, you really have to pay attention to the peer-reviewed literature and the reproducible peer-reviewed literature. So what does that mean? You know, websites are simple. And a lot of folks have domains that will tell you all of the horrible things that genetic engineering crops will do. They've been doing it for 30 years. None of their claims have come true. On the other hand, even the peer-reviewed literature, which means it's being produced by either academic, government, or sometimes industry scientists, they produce the, the research that goes into the public domain and then is tested again by independent groups. And so when you see independent reproducibility around given claims, then you can t- kind of put some stock in them. And that has to go for safety as well as for harm. The problem is, is that there are edges of the peer-reviewed literature called predatory publishing and also some other places that have lower standards that will accept research, which isn't so good. But when you see research that dies on the vine, a one-off paper that's never repeated again, a claim that it, like GMOs cause cancer, like Saralini published in 2012, Nine years later, nobody has repeated that work. It tells you you probably can't put much stock into it.
1: But those things have a tendency to spread. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, that's a keyword search phrase. GMOs cause cancer, right? So that's like I can type that in and I can get lots of websites that'll show up with that with that
0: claim. You'll get thousands.
1: So does that mean then that what you're saying is that I need to subscribe to a science journal of research? Is that what I have to do?
0: No, I think what your best bet is, is to do two things. Look on Google Scholar or PubMed. Those places have the vetted literature that currently exists. And you can look in scholarly reviews. If you put in GMO or genetic engineering, the scientists, we don't use the term GMO. It's not a term we use. Something is either genetically engineered or bred or mutated. You know, those are the words we use. Genetic modification to me means changing the genes from the previous generation. So a hybrid is a genetic modification. So you have to look in the peer-reviewed literature, so Google Scholar, PubMed, for genetic engineering review or GMO review. And usually you can find a really good comprehensive set of independent reviews from independent scientists who will review the literature. That would be a good place to start. And you might find some stuff that's kind of dubious, by the way. I mean, those are not necessarily filters. They generally are because you have to publish in a good place to get in there, typically, especially with PubMed. But Google Scholar does pick up some things that are a little bit questionable. But that's your starting point. And what you find is that if people are citing that work, meaning they find value in it to the point where they will use it as a basis for more research or to replicate it or expand on it then it's usually something that's trustworthy. Things that die on the vine, you see it one time, never see it again. Nobody cites it or expands upon it. That usually says it's not legit. The other important one is you have to look carefully if the people who are writing the articles that are appearing in Google Scholar or appearing in the peer-reviewed literature are actually doing research. There's a lot of papers that are out there that say, you know, GMOs cause cancer or glyphosate causes cancer, but they're done by people who are just compiling little lines and things out of other papers, putting them together in ways that make it look like a compelling argument, but they've never done any laboratory research. They say their research, but they means they look on Google.
1: They had an idea, then they looked for ways to support it on Google.
0: Yes, that kind of confirmation bias is what you see. You see that there's a claim that's made that is then supported. They use every piece of evidence they can find to support it, but nothing to challenge it. Whereas legitimate work will talk about strengths and weaknesses. And I think over 20 some years of talking about this topic, I've always come at it from let's talk about the strengths, let's talk about the weaknesses, benefits and risks. That's the legitimate conversation.
1: This approach to gathering information, I think having this conversation about how we do that, the resources that we use, and then how we evaluate the information that we see and read, and how we evaluate the people who put forth this information is so important. And it it takes effort. Well, it takes asking the question how, right? So I never, hey, I never knew there was this thing called Google Scholar, and that I could use that as a way to, to gather some information. I still have to evaluate quality of it. I still have to make my own decision, right? But I have to take some extra steps in order to do that. I have to take extra steps to really verify the quality of information.
0: It's critical thinking and critical evaluation, right? And and another good trick to this that's usually pretty good is if you see a claim and you look for it in a relevant scientific conference. If I go to a conference on plant biology or on agriculture, or even in you know medical conferences, you don't see posters and presentations on the dangers of GMOs or the you know, glyphosate and cancer. What you see is ways to improve crop resistance to disease. You see what are the genes that control fruit quality. These are the kinds of things we see at scientific conferences. And the other stuff is really um, kind of just a nonsense world. You don't see people actively studying these areas. And the funny part is, is that if those claims held any credibility, you would see mountains of money going towards them and many people trying to study them. So in other words, the person who discovers a link that confirms a link between genetic engineering and whatever, cancer, autism, whatever, they would give grants forever. So there's a lot of incentive out there to play against the convention. And scientists always do that. We try really hard to be rule breakers. If there is some kind of discovery like that, I hope it comes out of my lab.
1: That makes sense. The point that you just made about like, if there is a link between GMOs and, and cancer, then there are plenty of people that are willing to work hard to find that. So one of the false claims about that we've seen, you know, over time is about GMOs is that GMOs cause cancer. I mean, is that the big one or there are other ones that
0: Uh, It's one of the big claims. But the thing that's the problem with that claim is twofold. One is there's not one thing that is a GMO, right? Genetic engineering happens for many different reasons, from making better cheese, to making insulin, to making plants that are resistant to herbicide, to plants that protect themselves from insects. There's a million different ways in which genetic engineering has been used in medicine and in plants. So there's no one GMO thing. And cancer is also not one thing. It's an entire spectrum of different disorders that all have a common root of a cell's lack of ability to control its own growth and development. So it's two very broad claims that one affects the other. If it was legitimate, you would say plants engineered with the gene for BT, the one that gives them resistance to insects, causes Burkitt's lymphoma. That's how it would be plausible from a realistic standpoint that you would have a very specific cause, a very specific effect. That's what you would see if it was true.
1: So not some just generalization that GMOs cause can't like too broad, right? That's a big sign that it's not actually founded in anything of values. So how long has this been going on, these false claims, like a decade, 20 years?
0: Even before. And it really was all a residue of silent Spring, and, and really our, our nervousness about chemistry as a society, which, you know, has some basis, right? I mean, we, we all want a better environment. We want fewer chemicals, especially in the area of food. Farmers don't want to apply chemistry to crops. You know, it costs a ton of money to do it. So we're trying to get away from that stuff. And so when you started to see the companies that were creating chemistry now shifting to seeds, There became this very strong nervousness about that, you know, the suspicion I mentioned before and the claims about, well, if you eat this, it will cause cancer. There's no plausible mechanism that that could happen. And there's no evidence epidemiologically that it does. So here we are 30, 40 years later, the crops have been consumed, or well, I should say the ingredients from those crops have been consumed for 25 years now genetically engineered enzymes from cheese have been around for 30. Insulin's been around for 30 some, 32, or I mean, no more than that, almost 40. So a lot of products of genetic engineering have been something we've been with for a long time with no problems. Well, I shouldn't say no problems, with minimal risks and problems that we understand.
1: So what do you think the cost, do you think people have bought into the false claims that enough people have bought into these over time, that it's having a negative effect on the food that we eat or the scientific process, or you know, what's the impact of all that?
0: All the above. It's impacted our ability to get technology into crops that can help people. And the biggest examples, I the first thing when you started asking that question, I thought about Uganda, where they have a population which could use vitamin A they have a population where you eat a banana-like thing called matoke. It's more like a plantain with every meal uh, as the basis, like the rice or the, or the potato. And they eat this with every meal. And there's blindness, and there's also a problem with bacterial wilt. There's genetic engineering solutions to solve both of those problems, and I've stood under those trees, and they exist. They were made by African scientists, for Africans, for African farmers. But because of the fear that's created in the West and the influence of activist groups in those countries, those trees that farmers could use and that people going blind could be consuming a vitamin A, beta-carotene enriched version of that banana, they're not getting. Those are behind barbed wire with an armed guard. And I sat out there and I almost cried because of it, because you see the need in the field. I was on farms and you're standing among the solution. That can't be used because of the fear that's built in affluent nations. And I I think it's shameful.
1: And is it just fear among the people, or is it actually the government's getting involved and creating regulations? And is the local government putting up that barbed wire?
0: It's key players in the government. So, in that place in particular, the parliament approved its use, at least to begin to study it. And the president shot it down. So, one person, who could be influenced from the outside by the activists or by money or whatever, was making decisions that parliament approved. But the EU, the whole EU won't accept genetic engineering. And now that we're in the era of gene editing, which is a much more highly refined type of genetic engineering, they are not going to benefit from it where the rest of the world is. And their farmers know it. And their scientists are ticked. Because the scientists say we can come up with solutions that will help our environment, will help the food insecure, will help our farmers. We can do it. And the EU says we have a strict policy. No, it isn't going to happen.
1: Do you think they'll change their mind, the European Union? Will they change their mind about GMOs?
0: Yes, it's, uh, it's already starting to happen. Certain countries have said we aren't going to worry about it. Part of Brexit. England, is. they're going full steam ahead um, with gene editing. Their other neighboring countries that are not in the EU will put pressure on them because they'll become big producers of commodities that the European Union also produces. A great example was Romania, who was using genetic engineering in potato, and they cut the amount of insecticide they used. They against Colorado beetle. They were growing. They finally became exporters rather than importers, and then in 2006 it ended. And they had to become importers again and now start spraying chemicals. What changed? They joined the EU and they couldn't use the genetically engineered potatoes anymore. So they had to start using chemicals and start becoming importers. And it's a great example of how the technology can be beneficial for individual governments, but these sweeping across the board, ban genetic engineering, it it just leads to bad stuff. It, It leads to bad outcomes.
1: I guess one of the bad outcomes, I mean, there's even more use of chemicals and in insecticides and as opposed to if there's GMO seeds used, then, there's, then you have to use less. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's one of the big fallacies Is you hear. Well, it means they're going to spray more on the crops. If you're talking about insecticides, you can show that the use of Bt crops, so the crops that incorporate the same little protein that is used in organic. Uh, At organic production, that instead of using it on the crops, having to spread it and spray it, you actually have the plant make that compound. Now it makes them impervious to certain insects. The larvae don't feed on it. If they do, they take a bite and they die. It's a compound that can't hurt you, can't hurt me. People say, well, it's an insecticide. How can it not hurt you? Well, you don't give chocolate to a dog. You know, I mean, I'll eat it, but the dog can't. Certain things are toxic to certain organisms. And the Bt is very specific to specific insects. It's partially its problem. That's one of its drawbacks. It's too specific. But it'll work on certain insects and it's cut things in the United States. Cotton was revolutionized by Bt. In Bangladesh, some of the poorest farmers farmers in the world that cover three, five acres, they used to spray tons of chemistry all the time to protect their crops. And we're talking about old school insecticides. We're talking about things that we don't use here anymore or very rarely use here in the States. They switched to the BT brinjal, so the eggplant. And when they switched, you saw it go from a few farmers to a few more to a few more. Now it's everywhere where these farmers are not spraying anymore or at least spraying a lot less and they're seeing their yields go up. They can send their kids to school. And now the seeds are being smuggled into other countries that haven't approved them because the farmers want them and the governments don't approve it.
1: So you've been the target of some anti GMO activists in your history.
0: Yeah. From the beginning.
1: Yeah. Tell me about that.
0: I never have looked at people against the technology as my enemies or as people I, I, I didn't like, I looked at, there were basically people who didn't understand. And my job as a teacher is to not tell them, Hey, you're an idiot. This is how it works. It's to help lead them to an understanding. And that's what my job was. And so in the first years that I gave talks about genetic engineering back around 2000, 2001, 2002, three, it was all me going to places where they didn't like the technology. And I would go there and talk about it. And we'd have discussions and they were productive. And they were with wonderful people who cared about their planet, about their food. And we had great discussions. And some of them left a little skeptical, but at least looking for more information. And sometimes they would, you know, shout me down as a witch who came from Monsanto to spread false information. You would hear all the above, but you always would get a letter afterwards, you know, you'd get an email that would say, thank you for helping me learn more about this. I appreciate it. And that was my role. My role was to be the level-headed, soft scientist whose job it was, was to talk about science, strengths and weaknesses. And as we started to get into the more divisive areas around 2012, 2013, about labeling policy, about other more divisive issues, you saw more momentum online in the anti-GMO movement. The fact that I was a nice guy who was invited to the anti-GMO stuff meant I must be eliminated. And I was targeted really hard by these folks back then to this day. I mean, were, if you go online on Google, Google my name or Google images me, you would not hire me. You would not invite me. You would not want me in your school. Even today. Even today. I still get it on Reddit. There's one guy who is every day can, well, well, oftentimes just pounds the internet with false information. Other websites. They put up a one in December about how my garden looks like garbage. My garden, I mean, I live on teen acres and I've got, you know, my my wife farms that we put at the farmer's market every week. It's insane what they do to just try to knock me down a peg. And what they're trying to do is take the trust that I earn because I am the person who crosses the line and says, how can I help you understand this? How can I share this information with you? How can I help you either be appropriately concerned or maybe help you focus your concerns on the real issues in genetic engineering? And when you start coming to a contentious argument as the level-headed scholar who just wants to share science, you must go. <laughs> you're, you're to be eliminated.
1: So it hasn't slowed down for you in terms of the anti-GMO activists and their efforts to tear you down. That's just a regular thing.
0: Now Maybe it's slowed down a little bit in the last couple of years because I think they realized I'm a bad target. And when you go after me, there's a community of nerds out there who appreciate what I bring to the table, who go to my defense. And I think it even even folks in the anti-GMO movement, I think, look at me as the reasonable person because I'm not a pro-GMO scientist, right? I'm a scientist who sees it as another tool in the toolbox. It's not a solution for everything. It's one thing that we can do to solve a problem. And I've never described myself as pro-GMO. I'm a scientist who looks at all the tools of technology and how we can serve people better. And I think that folks in the anti-GMO movement, many of them do see that as consistent with their, we share the same values. I want the same thing they do. I just have a different tool to get there. And I think that they that they realize that when they go after me, it takes me out of the schools. And I don't just talk about GMOs in my life. I talk about conservation. I talk about water. I talk about climate change. I talk about vaccination. I talk about evolution. And not all professors do that. Okay, I was going to schools once a month and growing plants with kids, starting gardens. I, this is what I did. And when the anti-GMO stuff attacks in 2015, 16, when went haywire, all of that stopped. And essentially you had a movement that was there that actually worked against their own best interests by destroying my reputation because now I wasn't able to go out and do good work that they would agree with. And that's a real sad residue of this whole thing.
1: Are you interested in getting back into schools?
0: Well, I do a little bit now, you know, with COVID it's difficult and I do more of that, but you know, the, to be honest, since all of that happened, it got so bad that even I was even removed from leadership positions here at the university because I was having my bank accounts hacked. I was having my social security number put all over the web. I had my credit card information all over the web. I mean, these folks were getting my personal information and just spreading it out. You can see what's in my retirement account. I mean, it's amazing. Well, there's no re- legal recourse I have. And it was causing me so much personal stress and problems that in professional problems that the university removed me from leadership positions and I kind of decided I was going to just kind of uh, sit back and let someone else take a whack at this for a while. I'll keep going with the podcast and I'll keep doing good work in biotechnology. I'll talk about it, but it's more fun to help my wife and help her on her farm. You know, I mean, I go home from work and I work on crops. I don't get on a plane and go somewhere and talk about genetic engineering and science communication anymore. It's a loss in a lot of ways, but I'm very happy doing what I'm doing.
1: And you're definitely engaged. I mean, you uh, just in a different way.
0: Just in a different way.
1: Yeah, in different ways. And at some point, it becomes not worth it to go down certain paths.
0: Yeah, it got to a point where we were getting Freedom of Information Act requests for my emails, travel records, records where I would spend an entire Monday just gathering information to send to an anonymous requester for no cost. So in other words, you could write and say, I want all of his emails that have the word the in it. And my university would be compelled to produce those under freedom of information. And essentially, they were able to arrest my work one day a week where I'm not able to train students, teach, you know, work with stakeholders and farmers in the state, because I'm busy trying to chase down emails that I am compelled to produce by law. And this was part of the reason they removed me from administration. They said, it's costing our university millions of dollars to have you talking about science.
1: I think my listeners need to hear this. The real effect of bullying, that's what this is. It's not informing the public or exposing anything.
0: It's intimidation and it's coercion, which is what bullying really is. It's using threats, violence, coercion. To achieve your political goals. I've worked in the private sector my entire life, or public sector my entire life. I've worked for this for the universities. I've done a little consulting here and there, but for the most part, been a scientist in the public sector. And, and consulting is like for lights, LED light companies and you know, and strawberry industry, you know, clam industry. I ended up getting beat up so bad from all of this, where I was having physical problems, you know, feeling my heart beating out of my chest, skipping beats where I had to go in and get completed cardiac evaluation. Turns out it was just the stress of having to fulfill FOIA requests. Having my university told me to go get counseling because I was having so many problems. It really does have an effect. And I'm tough. (laughs) I'm really tough. I don't just I believe it.
1: I mean, you're still here.
0: And the funny part is someone who is vehemently anti-GMO could call me up and say, I want to talk to you and I will talk to them. I don't I don't ask what are we going to interview about and send me the questions ahead of time. You say let it rip. Let's talk about stuff.
1: Well, I can vouch for that because you said exactly that. And you, you know, just right from the get-go, nothing's off the table. Right. Is what you said. And it's like we can talk about anything you want, right? So you were completely transparent. That's what we need is transparency. So that's I, I learned something recently, and that is that there is going to be in the United States GMO labeling required next year, 2022. And I say that as if it's a question because, you know, all of this information is still new to me you know, and I could get it wrong easily. So I'm like, is that right? And so what do you think the impact? I mean, we see non-GMO labels right now, from what I've learned, that's not required. It's it's kind of like marketing but that's going to be required. If you have GMOs in your ingredients, then it needs to be said so on the packaging. What do you think will be the impact of this labeling requirement for GMOs?
0: Almost zero. It won't affect most consumers and other consumers. It will confuse. There will be some potential problem from this that when you put that label on there that says bioengineered, that no one knows what that means, you will have certain places that online will say, if your product has this label, it will cause cancer. If you see this label, it will give your kids autism. If you have this label, it'll make you grow you know, a hair on your tongue. They'll <laughs> say those things online. Oh, that's an old one from, It's an old claim. That's great. Yeah, it apparently happened to a mouse somewhere in Russia and caused by GMOs. Those are the things that you will likely see. But in general, people are pretty much immune to all the 80 million labels that are kind of meaningless. The problem is, is that it doesn't help us make good decisions. And that's what we need to be doing is understanding where our food comes from and how it was produced. That's what we need to know. The problem with the term GMOs and saying there's GMOs in my food is that it doesn't really mean anything. The only thing that you ever consume is the stuff from the center of the grocery store. Okay, all the produce, all that stuff. There's no GMO crop in your produce section, maybe occasionally a squash or a papaya, but everything else is just traditionally bred. The stuff that is from genetically engineered crops is the sugar from sugar beets, the starch from corn, the high fructose corn syrup, it's soybean uh, solids and soybean oil, canola oil. Those are the things that come from GE crops. And those are all found in the center of the store. They're the ingredients that go into processed food. And if I gave you a bag of GMO sugar from GMO sugar beets and a bag of organic sugar cane sugar, they would be chemically identical. There's nothing different between the two. And same with uh, soybean oil, GMO soybean oil or, or conventional soybean oil. They both are just oil. There's no magic. There's no DNA. There's no anything in there except for oil. So, how do you label that? And if you do put a non GMO label on it, how do you prove it? Because you can't test for it. (laughs) So, you're relying on people in a supply chain to be honest and say, okay, well, this is non GMO. You just see all the problems that it opens that now you have to have a government body enforcing and testing for something that doesn't even exist. So you can see the problems that we have there.
1: There'll be a money element you know, in terms of consumers making decisions about what to buy and what they eat, that that won't really change. People will see the label, not understand it, maybe be confused, maybe Google something. And there will be an increase in content on the web and on social media that is talking about GMOs and the labeling and that if you see this label on on foods avoid it and so there will be some some motivation adding fuel to a fire. There'll be this motivation to create content and, and put it out there. whether that content is true or not is like that's not really going to be the point of it. It's going to be just to get eyeballs on the content. And so when people see these labels bioengineered, then they will Google well what does this mean? And there will be some there will be someone who has created the answer, whether it's the right answer or not.
0: Well, that's what people want to know, right? I mean, about food is, you know, is is it safe for me to feed to my family? And is it good? Those are the things that I worry about every day in my job. I just got out of a meeting where we talked about how do you use indoor agriculture and funny lighting to make things taste better and last longer. And how do we have more local produce production here in the state of Florida, you know, during the summer when plants don't grow well here. And so we produce our crops in the winter. And so how do we help the winter lettuce producers produce more in other times of the year and compete against other states with a locally grown product? That's the kind of stuff that gets me excited. And I I want people to eat better. And those are the questions we should be asking, not... You know, tell me about the genetics of how this plant may have been produced. You know, tell me about the genetics of the plant that produced this. Just tell me about what the product is and if it's safe and healthy.
1: I think the the truth comes out eventually.
0: Yeah, the trick is is to be standing when it finally does. That's what my therapist tells (laughs) me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, make sure you're standing.
0: I win awards for being resilient that folks have said, you know, you, you paid the price for telling the truth and now you're, uh, and you know, here's a little recognition. And that's been really sweet because, you know, those are really important moments to me because I remember how bad it was and still see residues of how bad it can be. You know, there was a time there that was extremely dark. I almost quit science and I almost, I almost quit everything because I couldn't handle it. Um, It was, it caused all kinds of relationship problems. It caused all kinds of problems in my community. I got kicked off a bicycle group because of things that were written online. But you know that that's the problem is that these things are you know communities, and when the community you know kicks you out to the cornfield, that's it. And things you know some relationships have never been repaired because of things that were said that aren't true. But you know that's where we are. We're in the age of cancellation. You know I don't want to get into that stuff. But a lot of stuff that was, you know, maybe had a seed of truth here and there was expanded to be truly nefarious and put in print. There was a whole thing in Canada about how I was harassing a teenager. And if you look at what was actually said, there was nothing of the sort, but it's that headline that sticks with you and follows you through Google to the grave.
1: Right. It gets clicks. Yeah. I think the listeners that are hearing this are nodding their head. We all see it. We see this. This dynamic that's been going on for, for several years now of just really more than ever, we can't trust so much of what we read online and it's just become fairly normal to not believe stuff. So I think the majority of people are of that common sense. They're just not the loudest.
0: Well, but this is the problem though. And this is why it works is because a university that would hire you or want you in a leadership position. They're very conservative. And if they can find online that you jaywalk frequently, they're going to go, well, maybe we're going to let that that one pass. So yeah. they don't want a skeleton in a closet. No one wants some ancient scandal emerging. You know, all that stuff really matters. And when you go, you know, and I'm an easy one, when you go online and you read page after page of, you know, he harasses teenagers, he's a wife beater, he's this, he's this, he's this. When you see that stuff, it it seriously changes the perception where people don't even want to take a chance. They don't even want to you know tie their cart to you because of the potential fallout that happens and how it's propagated through the internet. And that's why I took so much action against the New York Times and others who exploit that.
1: Yes, but you do have people that have had your back.
0: Oh yeah. Between, you know, folks like Stephen Novella, David Gorski, from tons of other folks. I mean, too many to name. Dr. Allison Van Inan, Maria Trainor, so many people. And, you know, my old boss, Jack Payne. People always, there were so many who who really did. And the take-home message is, by the way, I would hate to, like, leave this unresolved, is that you have a choice. You either fold like a house of cards, or you say, I have to continue to produce and put good stuff online. To match the bad stuff and try to exceed their output. And so someone with a full-time job like me, it, it means I have to even dial it up more, more podcasts, more video, more media, more showing up at the school, more accepting every invitation that I get. It means that I really have to be able to outlive them <laughs> and uh, and I'll produce them and do work that people trust. And so that's where I'm at. Time will be kind, they say. And it's true. Because as these in movements that don't, aren't built in, in reality, whether it's taking out a scientist or whether it's falsifying information about cancer and food, it starts getting small in the rearview mirror, yet the reality stays front and center.
1: Well, I can't wait for people to hear this because you've been so generous with your experience and you didn't have to come on this podcast and talk about your experience. And I'm grateful that you did and you've been transparent, and you've been incredibly helpful in giving me some tools to evaluate information, at least in regard to this topic of GMOs. You've been a valuable resource. So I'm grateful to you for that. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. So tell me, Dr. Folta, where can people read more and reach you? And we can go to talkingbiotechpodcast.com. And download that Apple Podcasts or podcast platform. What else can we do?
0: Yeah, any place you consume podcast media. And don't go to talkingbiotech.com because some troll bought that and put up really bad stuff to counter my podcast. So, I mean, and then put my name on it and says it's me and there's all kinds of stuff on there. That's good to know. But this is what I'm up against. I mean, I got other people who are buying domains that mimic my website and putting disparaging information up.
1: Ah, so Talking Biotech Podcast.
0: Talkingbiotechpodcast.com. And, uh, but I also have a blog called Illumination. I occasionally write there. Uh, I'll be doing some YouTube stuff in the near future. We're setting up a home studio to do some more short clips answering your questions. And then um Twitter at Kevin Fulta. And also the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast every week on Genetic Literacy Project is uh, another place. It, we take a kind of uh, soft and I hope humorous look at three major science stories every week. So it's, it's another good one. You are busy. Well, and we run our laboratory at full time, and we're doing work and everything from strawberries to Covid nineteen, coming up with new solutions for folks. And so the lab ends, plenty of work to do at home when i when I get home from work. So I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm really grateful that you had me on.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of GMO Watch. If you love the episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This helps other listeners know what you think about our show, and they'll share GMO Watch with more people like you. As reviews come in, I'll read them and give you a shout-out, so make sure you add your Instagram handle to your review. I'll see you next week.